welcome back to the Election Whisperer pod. I know it's been a long hiatus, but, you know, it's vacation time. And when you're trying to bring on guests like my guest today, you just have to roll with the punches sometimes, guys. You know, I also had that nice appendectomy detour, which I'm happy to report I have survived. So my appendix failed in its effort to murder me. (laughs) Um, So today on the show, we're coming back with a really strong and really vibrant episode. I am so excited about today's guest. That guest is the prolific writer, nonfiction and fiction works, New York Times bestselling multiple times, Kurt Anderson, who has written his most recent book, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, um, and really for the first time tying together the story of Reaganomics, how it came in, why it came in, what it did specifically in terms of the economy, stock market, tax code, regulatory code, and other key policy areas to so fundamentally change the economy's function from that 50-year period after the New Deal uh, when, you know, um, the Gilded Age, massive income inequality, and speculative spending on Wall Street murdered the American economy. And, um, you know, for 50 years, we were very, as, as you write, I think, in the book, Kurt, very cautious about, um, you know, risk on Wall Street. And then that culture changed along with a lot of other things. So Kurt's going to talk to us a lot about that book in particular. But I also want to highlight that he has got some great stuff that he's put out previously. If you've never read Fantasyland, How America Went high, Haywire, A 500-Year History, um, you know, I'm sure it would be on the GOP's banned book list. <laughs> Way too much accurate information in that. Um, you know, he's also uh, got a podcast kicking right now that I am super jazzed to listen to. It's called Nixon at War. Um, I know that the, um, you know, the, the detail and illustration that he brings to his written work is really um, conveyed well in this podcast. And you're going to learn a lot about Vietnam and, and how the Nixon administration, um, you know, what they were really up to. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so very, very excited to have you on. Uh, Kurt, say hello to the audience. I couldn't be happier to be here. Uh, you know, longtime fan, first time guest, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so humble because your, your work is just so incredibly rich. And I'm going to come right out of the gate and tell you, like, when I read this book, I, you know, I have this, um, and it's largely unwritten because, uh, as we were talking about before we hit record, right now, every hour of every day is a a countdown clock to the 22 midterms for me, and I'm trying aggressively to keep Democrats in power against one of the strongest fundamentals in political science, which is that midterm effect um, issue, right? So I, um, you know, I, I haven't had time to do the writing that I've been wanting to do, but in my, um, you know, drafts, I have the start of a book that really comes at the problem that we're in, this hyper-polarized, hyper-partisanship uh, world in a, a much more broad-based 30,000-foot view of um, how we got where we were. And I had a really um, complex story about culture, right? How you hit this like inflection point in the 60s and you get women's rights and civil's right, civil rights and, you know, rock and roll, tune in and turn out and drop out. And the Vietnam, I mean, it's just this really com- uh, intense decade. And as, and, 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 and as you'll uh, illuminate it a little bit, 
you know, this spurs kind of like a reaction, right? Like, oh God, too much change too fast, even though America had always been changed, right? Um, and, and um, you know, the book, your book is focused on this other part of the story that I had been missing. I had, um, you know, highlighted the demographic changes with the Immigration Control Act of 1965 and the empowerment of black Southerners, especially, and how that created backlash amongst white conservatives. But it's really nice to piece these two stories together because you are so right that there was, it wasn't an accident, right? And so I want you to kind of start off telling us about the beginning of the book, um, which you are so shrewdly right to identify. And, and, and I know I always equivocate the same way. I'm not a conspiracy theorist person, but this was a strategic yeah. plan and it was executed point A, B, C, D, right? So you totally. start off talking about, you know, this backlash effect starts this philosophical movement, which quickly translates into action. And that action is what, Kurt? Well, that action is, is, is getting together and saying, how, first, how do we save ourselves from what seemed in the late 60s to CEOs and rich conservative billionaires? Like, oh, my God, this, this, we're going to be washed away. You know, the, it's, it's a socialist revolution happening. They, they, they believed the, the, you know, new left talking points, really, that, you know, the revolution was nigh. Um, and by the way, in terms of it not being a conspiracy, my previous book, Fantasyland, was significantly about, like, there's a lot of nonsense out there in terms of conspiracy theories. It was, among other things, anti-conspiracy theory. So it was interesting to then write this book that set up, here's how it happened. You know, and, and, and I think one of the reasons I missed it and other liberals like me missed it to some degree and, or to a great degree in the 80s and 90s is, is like, I eh, know conspiracy theories are nonsense. That, that, that's not the way the world works. And it's not in, in most cases, in many cases, and there are lots of stupid, untrue conspiracy theories. However, I think it blinded us, or me anyway, to what was going on, which is to, to say, I mean, I was only a little kid. I was, I was you know, 14 years old, 15, 16 years old in 1970. But, but what happened then is they said, let's get together and stop this liberal big government regulatory state from from taking us away well pretty soon i mean they they and so they created the business roundtable which was this first really effectively dynamic politicized capitalist politburo i call it really of of the of the ceos of the 200 biggest companies not every company, it's not some chamber of commerce thing, it was just the, the big guys and saying, okay, we're going to personally mobilize and lobby on behalf of our, ourselves and, 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 and big corporate capitalism. So there was that. And then, and then you know, we, we, we didn't know, most of us, 99% of the world had never heard of Charles and David Koch in their 70s. But in the 70s, they and their fellow uh, right-wing billionaires were mobilizing and were organizing and were creating think tanks and 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 planning. So once they sort of survived the late 60s and early 70s, then they said, oh, "This is working okay. Let's keep going and go for the gold, <laughs> literally and figuratively." Um, and 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 so and began creating the, this sort of counter-establishment. These all these institutions, intellectual, academic, uh, lobbying, and, and the rest. Um, to re-engineer 
the American system, to, to roll back the New Deal, to put in place a new paradigm that it was all about you were on your own and government was the problem, not the solution, and all those things. You know, I mean, yes, there, as, as you say, as I say, there was this organic backlash, conservatism, whatever, exhaustion with the 60s, but they took it and rode with it and, 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 and sold it very, very effectively. You know, I mean, Ronald Reagan came along and couldn't have been a better front man for this, this transition because he was charming and winsome and smiling. And yeah, he's just this cowboy guy. Oh yeah, that looks pretty good. Um, and, 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 you know, they won the election and, and kept on going. It wasn't as though they won the election and, and lowered taxes by, by half on the wealthy, but, but uh, they, they, they that was great, but like, no, let's keep on going and let's transform the system in hundreds of ways, yes. most of which people were really unaware of happening at the time. Yeah, and some of those ways, Kurt, right? I mean, so like you get, I mean, you get into this meat, right? And you talk about, okay, I mean, uh, there's two points that I really want to articulate. Number one, like they they get to, they literally get together and they come up with ideas to build this like anti-establishment infrastructure and they funnel a shit ton of money to it. And they start to build really critical things like you, you know, the Business Roundtable, but also the Heritage Foundation and things that are going to go on to kind of serve as like their marketing, branding, like frontliners, right? And, and of course, this and the books, you know, the books focused on economics, but they're also doing the same thing in, in the media world, right? Getting the fairness doctrine repealed, funding conservative conservative radio first, then cable, and then of course the internet. And they really understand that relationship between information branding, right, at controlling a flow or a chunk of that information universe and um, these getting the public to accept these things that are predominantly not good for them, right? So talk about some of the specific, I mean, you talk about hundreds of changes and it's true, but there's yeah. a couple that you highlight that are, you know, I think you said something like, um, you know, um, uh, the, the battlefronts become the law, right? And it's implementing originalism, this concept of originalism, and growing a legal community out of that to defend it in the courts. And so if you could talk a little bit about that, um, sure. that would be great. Yeah, I mean, and again, that was relatively invisible at the time. What became very quickly the Federalist Society, which now here in the 21st century, we've all heard of, like, oh, they took over the judiciary. Wow, well, hmm, how did that happen? Well, it happened, again, at this same time. There was this one of these rich billionaires uh, uh, foundations, uh, the Olin Foundation. John Olin uh, funded this this memo by a young conservative lawyer to say, "Hey, what what should we do to legally?" And he and and this guy wrote this extraordinary plan. And there were several extraordinary plans in the seventies and eighties that, like, you look back now and go, "Wow, they knew what they were doing." So in this case, it was we need to get people from the top law schools and 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 organize them and mobilize them while they're in law school, good law schools, and and begin seeding uh, the legal profession and the judiciary uh, with our people, uh, with our conservatives, and and so that he put out this memo in 1980, 1982. Uh, several students at Harvard and Yale and the University of Chicago Law School said, yep, let's, we're doing this. And they got Antonin Scalia, who was then a professor at the University of Chicago Law School, to be their faculty advisor. And, 
And, and they had these big dreams. I mean, crazily big dreams saying, you know, in 20 years, we're going to have uh, federal appeals court judges and we're going to do this and we're going to have... Well, yep, they did it because they kept at it. And and uh, so that was one thing. And that was, again, this, this kind of silent takeover, in, in effect, that nobody outside of, of, this rel of this small legal world really even knew what was going on. But the Olin Foundation funded these gigantic multi-million dollar programs at all the top law schools. To, to, to begin having institutes of their kind of law within these law schools, thereby legitimizing it as well as just seeding it for generations. And 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 here we are. Yeah, right? and you and, know, and, let me ask you this too, right? All right, so like it's true that like this beginning of the movements as they seeded this really smart um, kind of grooming, right? It's legal grooming <laughs> program. And yes. they funded it and it was articulate. It was a strategy that was laid out on paper and then ex executed and enacted, right? Um, totally. And it took a while for Democrats to catch on. But let's say like the, like the most ignorant people, you know, who are paying attention anyway to politics, they definitely knew what was going on by like 2010. Okay. Oh, and by, so let me uh, ask by, you. By, by, yes, yeah, by, yeah, the, by, by the, the 2000s. Yeah, the, the dumbest ones, right? Like, the, like <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So um, by 2010, okay, so we're talking 11 years ago. What is the Democratic Party's, you know, grooming program to answer the Federalist Society that they instituted once they realized there was this strategic plan to overcome the courts with conservative appointees, not just conservatives, but ideologues, right? Rigid ideologues. Uh, what has the Democratic, you know, orbit answered in the legal world to um, offset that? Is this a rhetorical question? No, it's not. It is. It is because I know the answer is nothing. And yeah, I, but I not, want you not to so say much. It. I mean, the thing <laughs> right? is, that thing is because for so many generations, you know, the liberals did rule. You know, ruled the legal system, ruled, ruled the system. Took so, it for granted. And the, yeah, exactly. And the complacency that developed and and remained for you know a generation after they lost the game, you know, up to 2010 was profound. And so. Not only did they not groom because, oh, no, we still run things. We still run things until suddenly, you know, as as they say, it happened. Things like this happen gradually and then suddenly. And then suddenly, you know, we have a six to three Supreme Court Federalist Society majority. So, no, they, they hadn't done much grooming. And moreover, st you know, starting in the 70s, as I lay out, and then certainly in the 80s and 90s with Bill Clinton and all that, um, the, the, the Democratic Party failed to to be have a distinct economic vision, right? I mean, Republicans, Democrats, nationally, you know, by the '90s, yeah, we all agree. We all we all pretty much agree. You know, at the margins, there's some little tweaky uh, disagreements, but basically, you know, welfare reform, yeah, we are, we're all good on that. Uh, so so uh, there ceased to be a left national vision that was distinct from Republicans. And, and, and so they, they kind of forfeited that whole part of the national political ballgame in favor of, yes, important cultural, racial, gender issues. But the economics was just like, meh, you know, yeah, there's that, that, you know, it's, it's, you know, the end of history, right? It's, it's, it's the end of ideology. We all agree. Markets rule. And, and so, there was no, there was no counter grooming <laughs> process. I, 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 I love your idea of grooming uh, because uh, who needed it? There were still the most people who went to law school were still liberals and so forth. Well, 
Yeah, and I got to say now, like we're on a five alarm fire in many fronts, and one of them is this legal front. So if somebody's listening to my voice and Kurt's voice right now, uh, coming from that legal world, for God's sakes, we need a federalist society for the left, and we need it like yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, and 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 there were all kinds of. I mean, what you know, we said you know all these things that were happening stealthily and invisibly. I mean, and some of them we know. People know now, like how the the minimum wage was not actually lowered during the during the 80s and 90s and beyond but uh, the the inflation did its work right it was never raised therefore it was lowered uh, and and kept at seven bucks an hour after it had been 10 12 15 bucks an hour in in real terms so the, there's and again there's a hundred things like that there's there's the thing that happened who knew at the time, right? It didn't even make headlines, this thing that happened in the early 1980s in the Reagan administration when Reagan's SEC changed this rule to say, yeah, this what's been effectively illegal since, since, since 1930, the 1930s, which is companies buying their own stocks to jack up the price. No, we're going to let that, we're going to let make that legal. We're going to make that okay now, which transformed the, the way the world works, which was, the like the pillar of what we then came to call the financialization of the American economy. So, so that companies by by now spend most big companies spend most of their earnings on buying their own stocks. And I remember like finally thinking of that when it became a big big deal. You know, 10, 20 years ago, twenty years ago. You know, like is that kosher? You know, and 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 well, but no, that's just the way it is. But then looking into the history, like no, it wasn't kosher, and then it was declared kosher, and now here we are. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And you're and you know what you you really highlight. I mean, it's not just like the, the companies. Be, so what do they do with it? They they're able to buy their own stock to inflate profits, but then they also realize they can they can compensate CEOs in much greater percentages than they used to, right? And they can do it by tying it to stocks. And I think you have a quote in the book that says the most obvious way to get CEOs to focus on share price was to set their compensation in shares, right? (laughs) And so once, like, so it's always been true that you operate a business for profit, but there had been this norm of acceptable growth, right? Um, You highlight one company, I can't remember the name of the company, but it was making about a 10% profit every year. And, you know, when this culture change comes, suddenly they're shamed, right? Like, no, your profits should be much greater. And the way to do that is to end your worker friendly, you know, system and impose you know, what evolves to be uh, the average American job, right, in Reaganomics, which is, you know, gets five hours added to it because lunch is no longer paid. So now you work 45 hours and you're compensated 40, right? And, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it, it's not about making work a comfortable place to be. It's a thing you suffer from or suffer through for nine hours a day um, because they've got to squeeze out profits. And then, of course, that leads to globalization, which you talk about quite a bit in the book and, and the um, you know competition driving down wages. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. And you, as you say, as you describe correctly, I mean, there was, there was a set of laws, rules, and norms about stakeholders, that it wasn't all about either corporate profits and earnings, uh, certainly not the price of your stock. That was, that was yeah, of course, people wanted their shares to rise, but that wasn't the, the, the kind of monomaniacal focus. 
And then it was made that in the in the late seventies and eighties, right? With uh, greed so is good, the, right? I mean, greed is well, good. It, yeah, exactly. And 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 suddenly, you, you know, how your community was doing, how the environment was doing, how your workers were doing, all these other things that are you one as the owner of a business balances with, you know, how how much profit you're making for your shareholders and yourself, cease to be part part of what you had to worry about. It was all share price, share price, share price. I mean the kind of monomania on profits is bad enough, but when it's share price, which isn't even a real thing, right? It's just this, like what today the market decides my company is worth as opposed to tomorrow or over whatever crazy, for whatever reason. So so it's nuts that that became the the, the tail wagging the dog of our entire economy, right? The, the price of stocks. So um, yeah, I mean, and, and again, there was, and and I try to be fair, right? In this history, there 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 were these global things, globalization, right? I mean, shipping, uh, uh, computer uh, uh, enabled, world trade became easier, all of that. Plus, technology itself; those are global things that they happened, right? The the question is though, how you how one as a country, as a system, as a society reacts to that, responds to that, deals with that. We did it because we had. The, our system had been captured and hijacked and re-engineered by my evil geniuses. We did it in one way that they didn't do it in most of Europe and Australia and Canada and the rest of the developed world. And that's why we're now starting in the 1980s in a very different place in terms of inequality and insecurity and economic immobility and all the rest. Yeah, I mean, countries. it's strategic American exceptionalism that was engineered. <laughs> yes, exactly. Bad exceptionalism. Right, right. Bad exceptionalism. But it was engineered in a strategic way to benefit the people who designed it. Right. right. And Precisely. it has benefited them to extraordinary means. I mean, but of course, it's like the media system. So I talk a lot about how the right built Fox News and radio and all of that um, infrastructure because they wanted to be able to control the narrative, at least amongst their own coalition. And it was exceedingly, I mean, exceeded every dream that Rupert Murdoch or um, any of those guys could have possibly had in terms of its scope, its reach, its influence on public opinion, which flows generally from top down uh, sources anyway. Um, but it had a Frankenstein effect, right? I mean, you can't control the host and, and you put them in a, in their, it's, it's capitalism ultimately, right? So if, if, if being flamboyant draws in viewers more than being right. boring and kind of impartial like uh, Brett Barr or something like that, then, um, you know, there's a race to the bottom. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, yes, it's a race to the bottom. And, and, and certainly in the internet age, we have all kinds of research showing literally that uh, information or misinformation or lies that provoke fear and anger and outrage are the most viral, therefore cause the most user engagement. Therefore, if you're Facebook, you're like that's what that's our business model is based on that. So, however, you know, I mean, I I, I think it's 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 absolutely fair to say you look at our left cable channel, MSNBC versus our right cable channel, Fox News, one, yes, left and absolutely ideological, but observes, sticks to norms, sticks to standards out of, for whatever set of reasons. One is not racing to the bottom, as you know, which is to say MSNBC, like the other one did. My point being that there are human choices involved 
in in Rupert Murdoch and his one of his sons deciding that no, we're going to go for the bottom, and and if it kills more people <laughs> because of they're not getting vaccinated or whatever it is or riling up racism, we're going to go there, you know. So 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 there are systemic economic change, you know, drivers of all these things for sure, but there are also always human choices involved and character involved. Absolutely. And, it, you know, I mean, that kind of ties into, you know, some of my, my, my work, which is getting people to understand, like, we are not typical humans. <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, uh, humans, Americans too, um, then you are m- not, you're like a one percenter in terms of information interest and intellect about politics and civics and government. Most Americans don't follow the news at all, let alone to the extent that, you know, Kurt and, and I and, and the audience here probably do. But, um, you know, so that's, I think it's always important to note, like how we have, they understand human behavior in a way that we kind of blind ourselves to with our idealism, because we don't want people to be like that. We want them to be engaged and informed and reasonable and rational. And unfortunately, the right uh, in one of their other strategic plans, um, you know, they they read the psychology literature and realized the weak points that could help them consolidate power and wealth. And then they push those buttons, right? And nobody pushes it better. And this is this guy so far seems to escape the limelight over and over. But you catch him and I catch him. And his name, of course, is Grover Norquist, right? Who has... A, he, so people like to push, like point to... Um, uh, Newt Gingrich, the 94 revolution, and they like to point to Rush Limbaugh and, and like big, you know, talking heads. But the fact of the matter is, when Reaganomics, especially in, in terms of its tax stuff, but also regulatory, becomes an ideology, is when Gover- Grover Norquist and the American tax, um, his organization, the tax organization, the think tank he runs, that it's when they introduce this concept of the pledge. Can you talk a little bit about how Grover Norquist is like so singularly responsible for destroying the Republican Party? Well, and and maybe the Republic to boot. But uh, yes, and 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 ideology. Sure, it's an ideology, but it's 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 such a single-minded, simple-minded ideology. It almost doesn't even deserve that word. It's it's no taxes. No taxes, no higher taxes, uh, uh, and and that's all it is. Which which is part of its, you know, virtue as a viral, simple uh, uh, idea, dogma. It's like that, that. That's easy to understand. There's no nuance. I won't vote for taxes. So anyway, 19, <clears throat> 1980s, uh, Grover Norquist is an up and coming conservative uh, activist in in Washington D.C. Uh, working for a a, a a tax lobbying conservative tax group starts his own, and 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 has the the brilliantly stupid or stupidly brilliant idea of 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 creating this pledge, which is which which he started that he and his organization started pressuring every Republican candidate for Congress, Senate, and House, and then beyond state. Uh, candidates as well to sign saying I will not vote for any additional taxes. I mean, it it it, it goes a little beyond that, but that's essentially it. Uh, and 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 it became because it was so simple and and there was no wiggle room involved. 
it it uh, it did the trick, and 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 that became just really apart from things that couldn't be said, like white supremacy and and so forth. Uh, the the, uh, the principle of the Republican Party, in a way, it really hadn't been before. Yes, Republicans wanted balanced budgets and and lower taxes than Democrats. But this, I will not raise taxes under any circumstances, was a new thing. And it's kind of, it's more like a fetish, really. Yeah, no, it's dogmatic, right? And so what yes. it does is that from that point, the Republican Party becomes untethered from policy and political realities, right? Which from are, governing. Which are, which are, yeah, right. governing, good government, responsive government, any government, right? Other than right. the one that might kill you in a pandemic, right? Because right. there's no wiggle room. And then, of course, everyone sees George Bush Sr., the president, you know, the one-term president, because he's 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 navigating this world where increasingly the conservative activist base is requiring this, this unequivocal thing, right? But when right. you're in the seat of government, right, like it's the reason Barack Obama starts dropping drones in the Middle East pretty quick after assuming office, right? When the realities of office are such that to go in with this bind is 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 absolutely devastating, right? And and so if you if you take fiscal policy seriously and are concerned with outcomes and not politics, of course, right? So as we see, you know what happens with George Bush when he breaks his tax pledge, and Grover Norquist, of course, is leading that charge, right? That that makes every Republican sheepish to respond to you know extra even extraordinary circumstances in most cases i mean we get we get action in 2009 with tarp right but it almost fails the the bailout bill i mean it fails the first time there are a group of republicans who are like no we're not going to bail out the financial industry as it's collapsing right um and and uh you know this idea of spending gets tied into tax and suddenly it becomes starve the beast starve the beast so talk about where we end up as america because here's here's we're all looping around to kurt and, and you say that you follow me so you're probably familiar with this I argue, look, the time is ripe, and you said pendulums must be pushed at the beginning of your introduction, right? That we had this paradigm come in in the, in the 80s, and it and it reshaped our economy. And now we're 50 years, 40-something years into this paradigm, and it has proven to be an abject failure. failure. Two giant financial catastrophes, both times requiring Keynesian economic democratic initiatives to solve and stabilize, right? And then, of course, like America's standing where, you know, you lay out this book and, you know, we're the top of the world, we're the innovators of the world, we're leading in R&D, we're leading in space, we're killing it, right? It's all new, new, new. And then suddenly we pull back culturally, but more importantly, we pull back fiscally. And that is where we have been now, for these 40 years. So I am telling, you know, Democratic candidates in my own advertising, the strike pack, I'm showing, look, this is how you prosecute the case against Reaganomics. And you tie it to the brand of the GOP who, believe it or not, are still riding on 1980s imagistic impressions about whether they're good for the economy when the record shows unequivocally that they're absolutely terrible on the economy for a lot of reasons. So can you talk a little bit, like, let's say you were sitting in with me and we were briefing 
frontline candidates, you know, moderates running in House and Senate races. And I, you know, I would teach these guys what I call an offensive, you know, economic posture that's that really leans into Keynesian democratic policy and just lambast the hell out of Reaganomics. What would yeah. you tell people to say or focus on or how to digest? I mean, this book is amazing, right? But it's very complex. So how would you yeah. get it down to some talking points? I, I mean, I, I, one thing, I, I, I think the 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 field is clear to not have to worry if you're a Democratic candidate about, oh my God, what's going to happen with the deficits? How are we going to afford this? I mean, I think most Americans at this point, even the low information Americans, understand the Republican Party, which, yes, was committed to uh, balanced budgets and all that more or less legitimately through, let's say, the 80s, have not been for two generations. So that whole idea that, oh my God, a billion dollars, $5 billion for infrastructure, how is that affordable? Nah, that just doesn't wash anymore. So don't even defend the pay for part of it, right? Um, uh, because they don't, right? The, their 2017 tax cut for rich people and corporations to, you know, uh, $2 trillion, that was, that was gonna pay for itself. Okay, leave it to that voodoo. I mean, yeah, this is going to, and this arguably really will pay for itself because it's soft and hard investment. Uh, uh, yeah, in well, I mean, just to say too, right, we know today, I mean, I don't know if this announcement's happened since we started to record, but they're projecting an 8% GDP <laughs> this last quarter, right? No, it's like yeah. we're, we're growing like China 10 no years ago at this point. We're growing, and, and the reason is because Democrats have controlled the policy reins now and have been able right. to implement massive stimulus. Exactly. And, and, and so what I would, you know, what I tell people is, look, we can need to make it a story about redistribution and make it clear your wealth has been redistributed to the rich. Right? <laughs> like, so, like, you know, you know, when we talk about these big spending initiatives, it's not spending initiatives. It's recapture and redistribution of your money from the wealthy back to correct. you. Right. <laughs> cor 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 correct. And, and by the way, this is this needn't it is a partisan thing because the Republicans are one way and, and Democrats are more and more and can and should be the other way. But it's important just for a candidate to look back at one of the reasons Donald Trump was elected president in 2016. Look back at Donald Trump's final big ad at the end of the campaign about why you should vote for me. It could have been a Bernie Sanders ad. I'm telling you, it's like Wall Street has picked your pocket, workers of America, and yes. and, and 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 ruined uh, the manufacturing base, and on and on and on and on. Of course, he campaigned on that, and a lot of his voters went, "Yeah, it is a rigged system," like you're saying, Mr. Trump. And then, of course, he did. You know, it was it. That was the biggest lie, as far as I'm concerned. Is 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 that he would? Oh yes. Somehow make good on that. Yeah, you're absolutely and, and right. He, and he didn't, but but the point being that there is an openness and an understanding of the rigged system and and the un, the, the the as you say the, the 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 corporations and billionaires picking your pockets, working yes. people. Because you personalize so I, I, it, right? Yeah, you want to personalize you know, I, it. Yeah, I, I I think you can just you know be actually different than the Republicans and and say okay. Here's, here's my opponent here, this Republican member of the House or senator campaigning on all of this infrastructural money that he voted against two, three, four, eight times in the last year. That, that's who you want 
so I, I don't know. I, I just think stick to the economics and, and remind people that this $300 per kid check they're getting every month. Democrats giveth and the GOP plan to take it away, right? Because you want to make no, it and, about and I that, think, right? <laughs> I think this administration is doing the best, like doing a pretty great job in setting up for 2022. Like, yeah, things are better. The economy is coming back. I'm getting more money in my pocket. Yeah, the Republicans really didn't want that. You know, and and and, and basically, cynically, you know, depending on your, your district, ignore the, the you know, uh, cultural issues and defund the police issues and all the rest, by the way, issues that the federal government has very little power over one way or the other, and stick to these bread and butter economic issues, which are winners. And, and not just not just present them like that, to use them as counter offense, right? So like that's, the, you know, a huge component of my strategy is, okay, they want us to talk about CRT and to fund the police, like, and they they know we're suckers for a substantive debate. So all they got to do is throw something out like that. And then literally, it's not just in the regular media, but across progressive media, there's been now three weeks of extensive conversations, hours and hours of programming, talking about CRT and how it's not really taught in schools, it's from law school and this and that, and that, right? But the point is, those 30 hours or 3,000 hours of, of, of communication would have, could have, should have been devoted not to introspection, but to retrospect or, uh, you know, outer perspective on them about January 6th, about covering up and, and tanking us, um, you know, a uh, bipartisan commission to cover for terrorists because they leave. I mean, these are huge issues. And that's why they want to keep us talking about the stuff that benefits them, not the things that are bad and totally. going to force them to play defense. So to take it all the way back to your book, right? You talk about, you lay out this Reaganomic story. And I, I just cannot urge anybody listening to this pod who has not read this book, please go read this book and pick up Fantasyland as well. Uh, I haven't read your fiction work. I'll have to get into that, Kurt. I, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm devoting all my time right now to work and not pleasure. But um, read these two books together. I think they do companion pretty well. But most importantly, read Evil Geniuses. Because when I talk about, look, the, the idea that Democrats are kind of like walking dead zombies and they don't do anything strategic, like we don't have to accept that just because it has been that, the, you know, I'm not a member of an organized party, I'm a Democrat, just because that has been the paradigm doesn't mean, and it, and it can't mean, frankly, that we continue to act that way. We need to become evil geniuses for good. Totally. Right? We have totally, to be totally. making these things happen and we have to do it right now, Kurt. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, no, I, I, I realized I didn't start out this way, but I realized as I was finishing the book, like one of its virtues, if it has virtues, is that this, like, do what they did, but for the good, right? I mean, th 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 this is a valuable uh, kind of military history almost of how this incredibly long march, this long war worked so brilliantly by keeping their eyes on the prize. And strategically and, and keep, planning, right? I mean, keeping at it, yes. plan, yeah. And, 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 and only engaging in, in you know, uh, following shiny objects when it helped you and hurt the other side, you know? I, you know, I mean, so, so that's one thing. And, and, uh, and, and also, again, I'm old enough that I, I was alive and young and, you know, 25 years old before this change happened. So 
It's like I'm I'm a person from the past saying, no, it wasn't always this way. We can, that there were good aspects about our economic system and how wealth was shared and all that. Uh, and, and we can return to that. Unlike a lot of these issues, like the issues I talk about in Fantasyland of just sheer craziness and, 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 and like anti-factualism and all that, or racism, those can't be fixed overnight. I mean, they can be fixed and, you know, the arc of progress is long and all that, but these are fixable. They're just a matter of, of laws and regulations and, and some and some shame properly applied. No you know? doubt, no doubt. And and ultimately, I mean, that's what that's what Strike Pack is trying to. I mean, it, you know, people see the messaging, but the you know the core central mission is you know there are these things that the right started doing in the late seventies, and and we touched on only a portion of them today. And the book even covers quite a bit of them. There's still even more things like the. Um, politicization of abortion into the religious right to kind of tap into that. Um, so, you know, the point is, is that they, they laid out a strategic framework. They continue to do that. They design things like Red Map, where they decide we're going to have this killer midterm, we're going to take over redistricting and reapportionment, then we're going to use it to squash our enemies. <laughs> and they yeah. did it, right? Like of the Federalist Society, they're going to infiltrate the courts, they're going to, you know, impregnate this weird, I mean, it's a stupid philosophy originalism okay originalism is stupid it's the stupidest thing in the world when you when you get down to it this idea that the constitution should be tied to the intent of a bunch of dudes that lived in the 18th century <laughs> like i mean it's just at the surface level stupid as hell right and yet it has taken over our jurisprudence and is poised to really do some serious damage um, at the lower federal level. And I think people are going to start to appreciate that, unfortunately, uh, soon. So the, the point is, we can do it. There's no reason we can't make strategic plans for 22, for for beyond, for this reapportionment, even though it's backwards looking at this point. Like, And we need to start now. And if you um, are listening to this podcast and you can support those efforts, Make sure you do in every way that you can. And, and uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I love your book. So please read oh, Evil Geniuses. Get a much better understanding of, of how strategically they dominated the economy. We didn't get to talk about the intentional decimation of unions via uh, the, the very well-branded right-to-work laws, right? Yeah, we didn't even talk about that, which is, a, which is a, you know, maybe the single largest part of the project was was the crushing of the trade union movement. Yeah, I mean, so successful, right? And now what they've done by by getting rid of the, I mean, this is just one, one, one point, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but like getting rid of those union ties for white working class men in particularly, right? Um, then what they have done is they untethered them from the need to be Democrats, right? And so when we think Completely. about that dealignment, you know, there's no economic... Um, incentive anymore tying that that segment of the electorate, and that's what, another reason why the racial dog whistling or really megaphone yes. today is so effective. Totally, and 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 you know, it's it among the the pieces of overreach that make me hopeful that the right and the Republicans are doing the the the, the idea that we are now the working man party, we're the working class party, we're the populist party. Well, it's interesting when a few of them, like the execrable Josh Hawley, for instance, actually are going there economically, right? And and so that's going to be interesting to watch because, in my view, 
the, the evil geniuses of the world, the Mitch McConnells of the world, are, are not going to put up with that. I mean, yeah, yeah, talk about the populism when it's about, you know, race and immigration. Sure, fine, go for it. But when you're actually talking about, you know, breaking up <laughs> tech monopolies and, 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 and these things that will cost the business roundtable money, that's going to be a serious problem problem for keeping their uh, coalition together. Yeah, it is. It's, it's actually like a, a emerging faction. You know, we got to hope it emerges faster because otherwise we're going to come out of the 22 cycle, even in the best case scenarios, most of the Mitch McConnell caucus in the Senate is retiring strategically, right? Um, and they're going to get replaced with Trump loyalists. And so we're really going to see, a, uh, I think McConnell is uh, there's two people better at lying to themselves than Trump, I would argue, because I think Trump knows a lot that he's a scoundrel. <laughs> but McCarthy and McConnell are lying to themselves if they think they can go through this redistricting and reapportionment, further compound and empower the radical faction, which is now the majority faction of their caucus, um, and you know replace these pragmatic business conservatives, the evil genius guys, with these, you know, like Marjorie Taylor Green idiots, right? So it is going to be um, dark totally. days for the establishment of the Republican Party if they don't. The best thing they can do for themselves is to join Democrats on these voting rights reforms and push the pendulum back to the center in their own party. But instead, they seem hell bent at riding this thing all the way past the last exit and right into hell. Well put. Yes, exactly. No, and they're going to, I mean, just like the people who are dying of COVID and say, yeah, I guess I should have gotten vaccinated. I mean, the Mitch McConnells of the world in X number of years are going to say, yep, oh, guess gosh, I should have, yes. guess I shouldn't have given the steering wheel to Marjorie Taylor Greene. No doubt. You know, Mitch McConnell, I have no doubt, and, and McCarthy are both going to have meet these moments. But unfortunately, when they hit, it will be too late for tens of millions of Americans, uh, potentially for the survival of de real democracy in America. And uh, Kurt, uh, thank you so much for your work on these issues. I am so, it was a, such a great conversation and uh, I could go on for hours with you, so. <laughs> well, thank you. I thank you for uh, for fighting the good fight so effectively and, and, and understanding, and as you said, it's a long fight. It's a long march. Of course, there are also short-term do or die moments like 2022, but, 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 you know, we, we made it through 2020. We can make it through 2022 and then carry on for another generation to get America. Well, I, as I call it, making America great again. <laughs>